Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, I've managed to get out a 40-odd long-minute episode for President's Day. So, happy President's Day, America. This episode is part one of the election of 1960. It features the awesome, brilliant author, David Petrusha, and I was also helped in creating this episode by Adam Vanami. After this month's episode, there's more notes at the end of the podcast. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Mr. Pop. Well, in 1958, it's an off-year election, and you've got John F. Kennedy, senator from Massachusetts, first-term senator. He's running for re-election, and he's run previously on the national stage in 1956 as a candidate for the vice presidency. And I wouldn't listen to any of the claims which are made by the candidates on both sides for the last three or four weeks of a campaign. But instead, I'd look at the record of both parties. Look at their record on all of the basic legislation which we take for granted. As Lyndon Johnson said, Social Security, minimum wage, unemployment compensation, protection for bank deposits, all of the things which we now assume are part of the American life were written into the statute books by the Democratic Party over the opposition of the Republican Party. This campaign has turned into a campaign of a party against one man. 
And all of us know very well that policy is made not by one man, but by a political party. And I think that the American people are going to put their confidence for the next four years and the next eight years in the Democratic Party. And I... Adlai Stevenson, the Democratic candidate, known as the Hamlet of American politics, had played the Hamlet Act once again and said, well, I'm not going to decide who the vice president is. You guys do it. You delegates do it. And Jack Kennedy throws his hat in the ring and loses narrowly to a crime-busting United States senator named Estes Kefauver. Hello, delegates. I give you the man from Libertyville, the next Democratic nominee and our next president of the United States, Adlai E. Stevenson. Kennedy made a last-minute bid for the vice presidential nomination, but was unable to fight off the growing support for Senator Estes Kefauver, who won on the third ballot. Stevenson and Kefauver were now the Democratic standard bearers, and Kennedy campaigned vigorously for them. So he's been on the national stage in 56. In 1958, he's running for re-election, and he had run and won in 1952 by a very narrow margin, so he's got to prove he's a vote-getter. And he wins in a tremendous landslide in 58, and is often running to the races for 1960. He's got the team in place, and he's going to go national. Richard Nixon is running and not running in 1958. He's not running for re-election to the vice presidency or any other office, but what he's doing is he's going out, something he does actually fairly well, although it doesn't work out very well that year, to help other Republicans running for office. It doesn't work in 58. Every so often you get these bloodbath years in American politics where the the party, one party or another, gets wiped out. The lawmaking branch of the government gets its newest look, and it reminds political observers of the New Deal heyday. For not since then has the Democratic Party boasted such a tight control of the Congress. A coast-to-coast election landslide sees state after state following an election trend which makes the mid-year vote epical for the Democrats. Indiana, Maryland, Connecticut, and others pile up the avalanche of votes in the sweep. Vermont even elected a Democratic congressman. President Eisenhower, shown voting just outside Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, now faces another session with opposition controlling the legislative branch. It's been the same since his first term began. In Massachusetts, Senator John F. Kennedy holds the state's largest plurality for a Senate seat. And the president makers look into the 1960 crystal ball. Quickly, his name joins those mentioned for 1960's presidential sweepstakes. And the the Democrats, however, um, really, even though they've got huge numbers of elected officials, don't have huge numbers of really great candidates. Um, they've sort of been blocked up, having to go behind uh, Adlai Stevenson twice in losing efforts. A good part of their office holders are Southerners. Southerners are not electable in 1960. You really can't put them at the at the top of, of the ticket. So, and, and in many cases, they're too conservative for the rest of, of the party. So there is a, a conundrum there. And, and so who are the leaders 
for the nomination. Jack Kennedy, even though he's, he's very young and a Catholic, is, is at the top of the heap. Lyndon Johnson, the Senate Majority Leader from Texas, a southern state, is also angling for it. Hubert Humphrey is a possibility, but he is polling at 5% of the polls tops. Wayne Morse, who is a sort of a weird character out of Oregon, is, is angling for it. And then there's a, a essentially a centrist, centrist liberal fellow out in Missouri, largely forgotten the history, named Wayne Morse. And he might jump into it. And, oh, and waiting in the wings, doing the Hamlet Act again, is Adlai Stevenson. The Democrats had nominated William Jennings Bryan three times. So could they, um, and the liberals in the party, would could they back and could they get a third shot with Adlai Stevenson? The most prominent liberal who is backing him is Eleanor Roosevelt. The Democratic Party had for quite a long time been composed of three big parts. One was ideological in the North and in the West. Uh, in 1960, it's more liberal. In the time of William Jennings Bryan, it was it was called populism. Then you have the big city machines. They're still functioning in 1960, certainly in the, in the form of, of uh, Mayor Daley's Chicago machine, but also in New York City, where Tammany Hall, uh, the famously corrupt organization, is is still functioning that year. And then in the South, the South. The Southern Democrats are not uniformly um, conservative. That's really a um, misjudgment, I think, of a lot of people uh, because think of um, Senator Fulbright of Arkansas, uh, quite the anti-war liberal in the 1960s, Claude Pepper, Senator from Florida, quite liberal, and Estes Kefauver in Tennessee, Al Gore Sr. in Tennessee, so uh, Ralph Yarborough in Texas. So there, there are shadings of opinion uh, of office holders in the South, but there are very few shadings of opinion of those office holders in regard to the issue of race and segregation. They're, they're, they are pretty much monolithic, and that's what makes them really not acceptable to the Democratic Party as a whole, and they are really not acceptable, certainly, to the rising African-American vote in the North, which is now largely Democratic, although Dwight Eisenhower, I believe, got 38% of the national black vote in 1956. But they are in key states. They're in New York and Michigan and Illinois and Ohio. And if they all jump ship to the Republican Party, then the Democratic Party might just as well go home. Main Street has not always been fire. There have been mobs in the square before the courthouse and riots that had to be broken up by the National Guard. And a white Baptist minister was beaten up on Broad Street. The violence in Clinton was news all over America Negro parents, backed by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, brought suit against the Anderson County school system 
which administers Clinton High School, asking that their children be admitted. The Courier News, the Clinton Weekly, spoke for the community in support of segregation. Editor Horace Weld. Well, any newspaper uh, is inclined to follow the, uh, the thinking of the majority of the people in the community, and this community and favored segregation all down through the years. Back when this lawsuit was filed in 1950, uh, we did everything we could to maintain segregation, and that was the way the community felt, and that's the way the community wanted it. And that was the editorial policy of this newspaper. In 1952, there's a pretty much wholesale repudiation of the whole New Deal, Fair Deal, Roosevelt, Truman, long-standing regime headed by Dwight Eisenhower. It's really not so much a vote for the Republicans. The Republicans will take the House of Representatives and narrowly take the United States Senate in 1952. But, but basically, this is a personal victory for Dwight Eisenhower. And then in 1954, the Republicans are going to lose control of the Congress. They're going to lose more seats in 1956 when Dwight Eisenhower is winning. The normal idea is that, well, the president is going to carry the Congress in. Doesn't happen. 1958 is that huge bloodbath where they, they lose all sorts of things the Republicans do. They lose the senatorships. They lose the congressmen. They lose the governors. There's only about two big survivors that year, which is Nelson Rockefeller in New York and Barry Goldwater in Arizona, two very conflicting ideological characters to lead the Republican Party. And 1958 is a very bad year for the Republicans. And what that means is that Richard Nixon, vice president of the United States, is going to catapult to the top of the heap for running in 1960 because the competition has been pretty much wiped out. The talent after Dwight Eisenhower is gone. And it's like, maybe you say, well, isn't it the natural thing that the vice president would move up? Not at all, because a vice president had not moved up since Mark Van Buren had replaced Andrew Jackson in the 1840s. So Richard Nixon gets a jump up Jack Kennedy gets a jump up in 1958. Dwight Eisenhower had not picked Richard Nixon to be the vice president. That was done in the back room, led basically by Thomas E. Dewey, who was the leader of the Eastern Establishment Republican Party. And Eisenhower goes along with it. And the relationship is going fine for, oh, several weeks. And then Richard Nixon runs into the uh, uh, slush fund scandal or lead scandal, which he has to talk his way out of with the checkers broadcast. And Dwight Eisenhower is perfectly fine to throw him overboard. He's willing to throw him overboard as vice president in 1956 when he makes the offer to uh, Nixon, why don't you leave the ticket? You can have any, any job you want in the administration except for the good ones, except for secretary of state, except for secretary of the treasury. Why don't you get off the ticket? That might even help you become president. And Nixon is like, no, I think I'll stay. I think I'll take my chances here. But all through the election process of 1960, you see a very, very awkward dance between Richard Nixon and Dwight Eisenhower. And Eisenhower 
is very loath to even mention Nixon's name in speeches or in, in comments in press conferences. And this goes on all through the all, the, all through the convention, all through the general election. And it, it's very, very noticeable. One of the uh, sorriest moments for Richard Nixon in the entire campaign is during that ill-fated first debate with Jack Kennedy when Sandra Van Oker of NBC News says, um, oh, about a month ago, there was a press conference with Dwight Eisenhower and he was asked, name one decision uh, that Richard Nixon has helped you make as president. And Eisenhower said, um, I'll get back to you on that. And he never did. And, and Nixon had to dance around what that meant. And so it was a, not exactly a team effort. It wasn't exactly like Teddy Roosevelt backing William Howard Taft for the presidency in 1908 and installing him as, as the crown prince and the designated successor. Eisenhower was waiting for Nixon to ask to help him. And Nixon was waiting for Eisenhower to volunteer. And then finally, Eisenhower gets the gumption that he's going to join the campaign very late in the campaign. And Mamie Eisenhower, his wife, goes to Pat Nixon and says, don't let him do this. His health is is not that good. I mean, he had had serious uh, uh, heart attack. He had had um, stomach problems. He, had, he, was, he was not a well man, and he was not a young man either. And so because of this, when Dwight Eisenhower does go to Richard Nixon and says, okay, rare to go, Nixon says, uh, well, I don't, I don't well, I know we're, we're doing pretty well here. You know, he, he just hems and haws and really puts Eisenhower at arm's length. And Eisenhower is, is, of course, very, very upset about this. He doesn't know the reason for it. And I think he says uh, at that point, you know, he looks like a loser to me. It's a very, very awkward relationship all the way through there, the vice presidency and the campaign. CBS Television presents a special report on Sputnik 1, the Soviet space satellite. Douglas Edwards reporting. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this earth. Suddenly, it has become as much a part of 20th century life as the whir of your vacuum cleaner. It's a report from man's farthest frontier, radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik, the first man-made satellite as it passed over New York earlier today. A lot of people remember the 1950s as a time of relative prosperity. And it sort of was, but not uniformly. In 1954 and 1958, uh, some very, very, really bad timing there for the Republicans, the nation has two recessions. So things are not altogether happy domestically, economically. You're not seeing the civil rights revolution breaking loose yet, but what has happened in 1954, you've had Brown versus Board of Education, you've had Dwight Eisenhower having to send troops into Little Rock to integrate the school system there. Um, so things are, are really bubbling beneath the surface and ready to, to blow sky high 
in regard to race relations, but they're, they're not there yet. The big issue is the Cold War. You've got a peacetime draft. You've got millions of young men serving overseas in the armed forces. And the big, what Dwight Eisenhower is going to famously call, as he's leaving office, the military-industrial complex. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Now, things were fairly stable abroad during the 1950s, you would get small bumps, which wouldn't affect America too much at the time. The fall of North Vietnam, the revolts against the communist rule in Hungary and Poland and East Germany around 1956, the Suez crisis. But in the late 50s, 1959, 1960, everything seems to be percolating around the the globe. Vietnam is heating up. You have the situation in the Congo, where the Belgian Congo was given independence. You see the country starting to fall apart there. Just across the border from the Congo come the refugees with whatever they could bring and often bearing marks of the trouble they had getting away. Further north, at the frontier post of Kasumbalesa, families arrive by car and on foot, and even the children are armed. For in the tragedy that has struck the heart of Africa, these people were taking no chances. Rhodesian police take charge of the refugees' weapons for safekeeping until their possible return to the Congo. But some of them... Anti-colonialism is rising around the world. You see the beginning of... of uh, nations being freed from the British Empire, say Ghana in West Africa, where you have some real messy situations is in Algeria, where a large percentage of the population there was actually a European French, but the uh, Algerians are revolting against that and it is a very nasty, bloody and brutal situation. And then again, of course, in Cuba, where New Year's Day 1959, Fidel Castro takes over from Batista. You see a lot of anti-American rhetoric, the nationalization of all sorts of industries, many of which are American-owned. And then in 1960, the U-2 incident, where an American pilot by the name of Francis Gary Powers is shot down over the Soviet Union, conducting very high-level, high-altitude surveillance of Soviet military installations. If things had gone well for the Americans, Powers would have been killed. But he was taken alive and, you know, sort of a, a trophy for the Soviets. And this is when there is supposed to be a big four-power summit in Paris, the United States, Khrushchev, Britain, 
France and Eisenhower administration refuses to apologize. Khrushchev pulls out of it. And it is a major, major embarrassment on two levels for the United States. One, that one of our planes had been shot down, and then that the summit had been shot down. So all of those things uh, were bad for the um, United States in regard to the Cold War, which things seem to be spinning out of control. There you seem to be a rising tide of anti-Americanism around the world. When um, Richard Nixon went to Venezuela in uh, 1958 or 59, uh, his car was attacked by by rioters, and uh, and he was uh, literally uh, stoned uh, as he was riding through uh, Caracas. So very very bad situation, and people wondered, is America falling behind in the space race, in the missile race? How how safe are we? That's part of the pitch of John F. Kennedy. Let's get America moving again. Mr. Nixon and I campaign for the most important office in the free world. But in my judgment, this is more than a contest between Mr. Nixon and myself. It is more than a contest between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. It is a contest between the contented and the concerned, between those who wish to stand still and those those who wish to move ahead. Mr. Nixon runs on a slogan, we've never had it so good. I run on the slogan, we're going to have to do much better. The primary system grows out of the progressive movement of the early part of the 20th century. And it really starts strong and then starts to wind down in the intervening decades. I think part of that may be because of Franklin Roosevelt. (laughs) You know, when you've got a fellow who's in there for that long, you're not going to have any primaries against the a sitting incumbent that that strong. And so some states actually got rid of them. In some cases, the primaries were mere beauty contests where you did not get control of the delegates, even if you won the, the popular votes uh, in on the ballot box on primary day. And so, or think about it, that in 1956, it was Estes Kefauver who won most of the Democratic primaries and does not win the nomination against Adlai Stevenson. Why? Because most of the delegates are chosen at party conventions in the proverbial back rooms in the states. And so even if you win most of the primaries, and there aren't that many of them back then, there's only about a dozen contested primaries in any way, shape, or form for the Democrats in 1960. And some of them are like, well, you know, it's New England. Jack Kennedy, you're not going to challenge him in New Hampshire. The the guy running against Kennedy in in New Hampshire is a ballpoint pen manufacturer from Chicago. Not much of a contest there. But the two contests, and they, they short circuit the contest in Ohio and California by dealing with the incumbent Democratic governors and basically either threatening them or making deals with them. So it comes down to essentially two big primaries in 1960 for Jack Kennedy and for the Democrats. The first is in Wisconsin. And it's interesting He had to face the question, would he run in Ohio or would he run in Wisconsin? 
at the beginning of the process. If he can't make the deal with the governor of Ohio, Mike DeSalle, will he enter Ohio? And the resources are not there minus all the super PACs, even when you've got Joe Kennedy, the multimillionaire as a father, to fight the two primaries at the same time. This seems impossible by today's standards, but it was. So he goes into Wisconsin. One of the reasons for that, well, he doesn't have to go into Ohio after a certain point, but he goes into Wisconsin, which has a certain peril to it because of geography and the geography and the ideology of the state, where it's very progressive and it's sitting next door to Minnesota, which is Hubert Humphrey's state. And Hubert Humphrey has a great many admirers in Wisconsin. And also, even though Humphrey had been polling nationwide, maybe 5% tops, when you are the guy who is the last man standing or the only man going into the primary against the front runner, well, then a whole bunch of support that you would not normally have goes to you. Jack Kennedy makes that decision to go into Wisconsin nonetheless because it is the most heavily Catholic state in the Midwest. So he thinks he's got a good shot at that. They have 10 congressional districts at that point. He thinks he can, oh, at maybe do eight of those districts, certainly seven. The polling is actually pretty good through all of 1960. It's everyone projects it's going to be close, 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 and then closer. And it is. But the polling that Jack Kennedy has done internally by Lou Harris in Wisconsin is off in the in certain congressional districts. And he ends up campaigning in the wrong districts when he should be in other ones. So he only takes six out of ten. And what does that mean is a lot of the process in the nominations is what is your expectation. And the expectation is Jack Kennedy is going to do better, so he underperforms. This leads up into West Virginia. He had been entered into the West Virginia primary, was polling very well. Hubert Humphrey, who was seriously underfinanced, decides to go into West Virginia at that point because he has overperformed in Wisconsin. Jack Kennedy's polling is very strong at the beginning of the process, but then when West Virginia, which is 95% Protestant, one of the most Protestant states in the union, starts to figure out that Jack Kennedy is a Catholic, his polling numbers go down and it becomes for a while, a real dogfight in West Virginia Kennedy has to pull out all the stops. As he did in Wisconsin, he brings in all his relatives. He brings in Bobby as the campaign manager, and he brings in Rose Kennedy, his mother, and his brothers, and his sisters, and and just about everyone else he can think to shore his popularity up. He uses the uh, Catholic issue there to good advantage, however, because he points to his World War II service, and his late brother's service, Joe Jr., who had been killed in the war, and says to the West Virginians, very patriotic people, who had the most people serving in in World War II per capita of any state. I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, and where no man is denied public office 
merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. This is the kind of America I fought for in the South Pacific and the kind my brother died for in Europe. No one suggested then that we might have a divided loyalty, that we did not believe in liberty, or that we belonged to a disloyal group that threatened, I quote, the freedoms for which our forefathers died. And in fact, this is the kind of America for which our forefathers did die. For while this year it may be a Catholic against whom the finger of suspicion is pointed, in other years it has been, and may someday be again, a Jew, or a Quaker, or a Unitarian, or a Baptist. If this election is decided on the basis that 40 million Americans lost their chance of being president on the day they were baptized, then it is the whole nation that will be the loser in the eyes of Catholics and non-Catholics around the world, in the eyes of history, and in the eyes of our own people. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This works very well for Jack Kennedy, and he also brings in Franklin Delano Roosevelt Jr. to campaign. Um, because the Roosevelt name is still magic in West Virginia. It's still magic in the entire Democratic Party, really. And FDR Jr. raises the issue of Hubert Humphrey not serving in World War II. And the implication is that he is a draft dodger. This does not go over well with the West Virginians. Jack Kennedy doesn't make this charge. In fact, he says, oh, I'm, I'm kind of so sorry he brought that up. Of course, he's not sorry at all. But he's not certain he's going to win at all. Whenever you see in a primary 
uh, a candidate half a continent away on election night, primary night, it means he's not going to win that state. If if you see uh, um, Ted Cruz in the 2016 in Nebraska when the vote is coming in in New York, you know he's going to get creamed in New York. So it was with Jack Kennedy, who was not in West Virginia primary night, but actually in Georgetown seeing a, a movie with, with Jackie. And then he gets the phone call from Bobby Kennedy, you've won, and he gets back to West Virginia two o'clock in the morning. And that is basically the end of the primary season for the Democrats. Next to Billy Graham, who is going to sort of endorse Nixon, but next to Billy Graham, the biggest Protestant clergyman in the United States at that time was a fellow named Norman Vincent Peale, who was a big best-selling author. If you've ever heard of the term positive thinking, he wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. Huge bestseller, probably still sells today. His, he had a church in New York City around 29th and I think Lexington, somewhere right around there. And he it aligns himself with a bunch of clergymen who are taking pot shots at Jack Kennedy's religion. It's, it's still in the memory of people who had seen what happened to Alfred E. Smith, Catholic governor of New York in 1928, when he ran in, uh, in 1928 and was crushed uh, nationwide and particularly in certain areas. One, you know, Dwight Eisenhower doesn't carry Arkansas in 52 or 56 as popular as he is. And he's carrying places like Texas, Louisiana, Florida, Tennessee, Virginia. He doesn't carry Arkansas, but Nixon comes very close to carrying Arkansas. I think it's probably the Catholic issue there. The one potential challenger for the nomination that Richard Nixon faces is a newcomer on the electoral scene, Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller, elected in a landslide in New York in 1958 to the governorship. Oh, I remember seeing him campaign myself. And he was a terrific campaigner. It's always interesting how some of these people who are fabulously wealthy, or just plain wealthy like Franklin Roosevelt, but fabulously wealthy like a Jack Kennedy or Nelson Rockefeller or Donald Trump can have the common touch and can certainly reach down into, say, the working class. And, and Rockefeller was a great campaigner. He was very liberal and very wealthy and was very well connected. He was putting together these programs to come up with a national agenda for the United States, even before he was running for governor of New York. So he was thinking big. And as soon as he's governor of New York, he's thinking even bigger, puts together a very well-funded campaign. Our White House caller is New York's Governor Rockefeller, a Republican who would accept a presidential draft by his party. After seeing President Eisenhower, he reserves his statement for a Manhattan news conference, challenging Vice President Nixon to put his views forward immediately. One. I find it unreasonable that the leading Republican candidate for the presidential nomination has firmly insisted upon making known his program and his policies not before, but only after his nomination by his party. Two, I find it reasonable and urgently necessary 
what the new spokesman for the Republican Party declare now, and not at some later date, precisely what they believe and what they propose to meet the great matters before the nation. One of his early advisors is a fellow who's going to be more associated with Richard Nixon, and that's Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger, who keeps having his, his moments with Nelson Rockefeller, resigns five times from working for Rockefeller, but is, is hired back each time. But Rockefeller, for putting together all these big staffs and think tanks and big ideas, does not connect with the Republican voters. So that by the time 1959 is over, and he's been polling something like 17% against Nixon, he realizes every time he goes out, he's losing more votes. It looks bad, and he, he has the good sense to get out. He does not get out gracefully at all. He continues to take pot shots at Nixon. And moreover, this is really reckless. He keeps taking pot shots at basically the Eisenhower administration. Um, so that this is not a pathway to nomination in any way, shape, or form. The other fellow who survives the 1958 Republican bloodbath is not a candidate that year, but is a critic, also a critic of the Eisenhower administration, but from the opposite direction. And that's Barry Morris Goldwater, senator from Arizona. And he will become very critical of Richard Nixon, probably the most critical in his entire career, because he always sort of turned a blind eye to Nixon's foibles and, and his straying from conservative doctrine. This happens when Nelson Rockefeller takes another one of these pot shots at the Republican platform. And Nixon gets into a panic and wants to appease Rockefeller. Now, he also wants to do more than appease Rockefeller. He wants to bring Rockefeller onto the ticket. New York State at that time is the largest state in the union. It's got something like 45 electoral votes. And here's a guy who showed he could carry New York. He could carry New York. So he could help push Nixon over the top in the 1960 election. Nixon has to be pushed over the top. There are basically five to six million more Democrats in the country at that point than there are Republicans. Nixon has to switch a lot of votes to, to make the trip to the White House in 1960. So Nixon gets on the plane in the middle of the night, goes to Nelson Rockefeller after a whole bunch of conditions have been met for this meeting and basically grovels to him over the platform, lets Nixon, lets Rockefeller issue the statement. Uh, it's, it's in his words. Rockefeller is allowed to say, Nixon requested this meeting. I didn't. So it, it, Nixon looks really weak here. And this really sets Barry Goldwater off. This is called the surrender. This is called the Fifth Avenue Compact and, and a real sellout to the people who actually were working on the Republican platform in, in Chicago. All their work was, was basically junk. So when they get to that convention, Nixon still has to smooth things out. Rockefeller shows up at the convention. He was not going to show up, but, but he shows up, actually places Nixon's name. Well, he places Nixon in nomination. I was about to say his name, 
But Rockefeller being one of the foremost dyslexic people of our time, or my time anyway, gets it wrong. And instead of saying Richard M. Nixon, says, I nominate Richard E. Nixon. He is still kind of taking shots at the party. And Goldwater also shows up at the convention, gives a pretty famous speech, which the import of which is not grasped right away. He's talking to his supporters, his fellow conservatives. He was growing in stature and know this all the time then. He had a newspaper column in like 127 papers. He had written, more famously, a book called The Conscience of the Conservative, which was a mega, mega, mega best. Well, he had published it. He did not write it. Much like Jack Kennedy did not write Profiles in Courage or, uh, or, his, or Why England Slept. But he goes there and he says, fellow conservatives, grow up conservatives and we will take this party back. And the party hadn't really been a conservative party in, in a meaningful sense since Calvin Coolidge. And what the, this is going to happen in 1964 when the conservatives revolt and take the party back. Mr. Chairman, delegates to the convention and fellow Republicans, I respectfully ask the chairman to withdraw my name from nomination. Please. I release my delegation from their pledge to me. And while I am not a delegate, I would suggest that they give these votes to Richard Nixon. We've had our chance, we've fought our battles. Now let's put our shoulders to the wheel of Dick Nixon and push him across the line. Let's not glide back. This country is too important for anyone's feeling. This country and its majesty is too great for any man, be he conservative or liberal, to stay home and not work just because he doesn't agree. Let's grow up, conservatives, if we want to take this party back, and I think we can someday. Let's get to work. Just remember this. The Democratic Party is no longer the party of Jefferson Jackson and Woodrow Wilson. It is now the party of Bowles, Galbraith, and Walter Ruther. Thank you. Next month, we are going to go back and complete our Ronald Reagan biopic so if you've been left on tenterhooks uh, we left it round about what the early 1970s and uh, Ronnie is about to embark on his run to become president of the United States so that will be next month just before I go I'd like to let you know that I am organizing a rather big conference uh, which will be happening online on April the 24th 
Uh, it's a thing called intelligent speech. You can buy tickets. There will be eight hours of audio entertainment provided by some of the best podcasters and content creators out there. We have Rodyard Lynch from What is Alternative History from YouTube, uh, David Crowther, The History of England, and Liz Covert from Benjamin Franklin's World. They're just the keynote speakers. And then there's going to be another 40 odd content creators providing history based content. So um, if you'd like to purchase a ticket for that, you can go on to intelligentspeechconference.com. That's intelligentspeechconference.com. Go get yourself a ticket today. And I'll see you all again next month for uh, Ronald Reagan Part 2. Have a great President's Day. I hope you've uh, enjoyed yourself today, not worked too hard if you didn't have to go into work and uh, have enjoyed yourself. And hopefully this has been a nice tonic for you. Uh, if you'd like to send me an email, if you'd like to talk to me about anything, you can catch up with me quite simply via email where I am royfield at gmail.com. So that's R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. Um, I'll see you all again next month. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.